Bible reading for the sermon, last one for 2 Corinthians. If you've got one of the church Bibles, it starts on page 820. Otherwise, you're going to have to flick to it on your device, starting at verse 11 in chapter 12. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not the least in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The, thin, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches? Except that I was never a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did he not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realise that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection." This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You might have recognized the end of the uh, passage there from the grace. Uh, So some familiar words, um, but hopefully uh, we'll be able to look at them afresh today. If I was Paul, I think I might just have given up on the Corinthians. As we were reading through the last few chapters of 2 Corinthians at my growth group on a Wednesday night, the thought struck me, how has Paul not given up on these people? Just to remind you a bit of the story so far, Paul planted a church in Corinth. He appointed leaders there and he moved on. However, he heard that things had gone downhill and so he'd written a letter. This letter is actually lost to us today, but Paul actually refers to it later in 1 Corinthians. Then Paul heard things hadn't improved, and so he wrote 1 Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul addressed the sinful behaviours of the church, including factions, court cases, and sexual sin. And then Paul visited Corinth, and it was painful. Some people still hadn't repented of their sin. After the painful visit, Paul then sent a third letter via Titus. This is another mysterious missing letter that we don't have. And in this letter, he again rebuked them. And then we get to 2 Corinthians. And then Paul is going to now visit them again for a third time. It's clear in our passage today that as Paul prepares to visit Corinth for the third time, there are still major problems. There's still people who haven't repented of their sin. Some members of the church probably aren't even Christian. And things have been made even worse than the so-called super apostles, these false teachers who have spread vicious and untrue rumors about Paul, who we've heard about the last couple of weeks. Well, Paul has poured so much energy into this church in Corinth, and they've let him down again and again and again. They've even believed the lies about him. They've rejected him and slandered him. If I had been Paul, I think I would have given up on the Corinthians. But he doesn't. Today, as we look at the tail end of 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at this deep fatherly concern that Paul has for this church. But before we dig in, I'm going to pray and ask God for his help to help us to understand his word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you speak to us through it. As we look at it today, help us to understand it, to learn from it, and to let it change the way that we live in response to all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see on your sermon outline, I got a bit excited about alliteration. From our passage today, Paul shows us five features of his ministry to the Corinthians. You'll see the first one there is sticking with people, the second one is serving, third one is strengthening, straight talking, which is really about rebuking, and five is supplication. And the reason I used the word supplication was because it started with S, um, but it really just means prayer. Let's have a look at the first one there, sticking with people. Read with me from verse 11, it'll also be up there on the screen. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. How are you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. 
Well, as Paul notes here in verse 11, he really should have been commended by the Corinthians. After all, he was the one who planted the church. He mentored their leaders and had continued to care for them again and again through his letters and through his visits. Despite their spiritual immaturity, he keeps on caring for them. But instead of commending Paul, the Corinthians had criticized him. They'd accused him of being weak, of being inconsistent, and even being corrupt. But Paul persevered, as he says in verse 12. Even the very acts of writing this letter to Corinthians, he's showing that perseverance. Paul's ministry, you see, is about sticking with people. Paul realizes he's got this important role to play as a father uh, to uh, the Corinthians, a spiritual father to them, and so he sticks with them. Secondly, Paul's ministry is about serving. Read with me from verse 14. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. So as Paul tells the Corinthians here that he's coming to visit them, he also makes it clear that he's not going to be a burden. He won't expect them to pay him. He uses this metaphor of a parent with a child. Now, many of you here are parents, and I'm sure that you would agree with me that being a parent is much more about giving than it is about getting. That's certainly what I found so far with my three-month-old baby. Well, I'd certainly love for him to start changing his own nappies or at least emptying out that smelly nappy bin. That's not going to happen. Being a parent is about service. It's about giving rather than getting. And so Paul will gladly use his own money for the sake of coming and visiting the Corinthians. Elsewhere, Paul does make it clear that gospel workers do deserve to be paid for the work they do for the Lord. But for the Corinthians, Paul gives up this right. He's not going to be a financial burden on them. In fact, he'll go even further, verse 15, and even expend himself for the sake of serving the Corinthians like a father serves his child. For Paul, this is what Christian ministry is, sacrificial service. Now, sadly, the Corinthians don't seem to have realized this. Verses 16 to 18 show us that they, probably under the influence of the false teachers, have even accused Paul of embezzling. Now, this is ridiculous. It's the exact opposite of the truth. Paul has not benefited financially from the Corinthians at all. He's given so much to them and taken nothing. Now, for Paul, Christian ministry is service putting others before himself. So why does Paul give his resources and himself? Well, this brings us to our third point. For Paul, Christian ministry is about strengthening. Read verse 19 with me. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. So in these verses, Paul makes it very clear that his aim in writing this letter hasn't been to defend himself to the Corinthians. He doesn't need to. It's God's opinion that matters, not their opinion. No, the purpose of this letter, he says, is for their strengthening. 
That's the reason he writes those four letters. It's the reason he visits the Corinthian church. And it's the reason he's about to visit them again as he writes this letter. Paul wants to build the Corinthians up, to strengthen them in the faith, to see them grow and to see them stand firm in Christ. Paul mentions this again in chapter 13, verse 10, when he says his authority is for building them up and not for tearing them down. You see, Paul's not writing this letter to be nasty. He's not going to come and punish the Corinthians as an act of revenge. He hasn't written this letter to make himself look good. No, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul's motivated by strengthening the building of the Corinthian church up. And for Paul, building the Corinthian church up doesn't mean that he's going to be a people pleaser. He's not only going to tell the church what they want to hear. This brings us then to our fourth point, our fourth aspect of Paul's ministry, straight talking. Read with me from verse 20. For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that they may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who've sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Well, you notice the problem here isn't that the Corinthians are sinful. The Bible makes it clear that as Christians, we continue to sin. Paul is particularly worried about unrepentant sin. That some of these Corinthian Christians will be persisting in their sinful behaviours despite multiple rebukes and multiple warnings. Christians, we're not perfect, are we? And as much as we should strive to be perfect and holy, the reality is that Christians still sin. But as Christians, we need to be people who repent of their sin. That's how we become Christians, and it's also how we continue as Christians. It's why we confess our sins to God here at church. Some of the Corinthians clearly needed to repent. Paul had taught them and rebuked them again and again through his visits and his letters. Christians need to repent of their sin. Now, if you're like me, the first time you read uh, chapter 13, verse 1, you thought this was a bit random. Paul says every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why does Paul mention this Old Testament law? I think verse 2 helps us out when it says... I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. The Old Testament disputes needed the eyewitness testimony of two or three witnesses. And Paul is using his previous two visits, visit one, visit two, as eyewitnesses. His next visit will be the final test to see if the Corinthians have repented of their sin. Here Paul brings in his straight talking. Read with me from verse 2. I already gave you a warning when I was with you a second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Here Paul is giving the Christians a final chance to repent before he returns and they will face the consequences. 
Now, as I mentioned before, I'm a high school teacher, and when I had COVID earlier in this, uh, this year, I had to send in work for my students. Now, one of my senior classes in particular, I won't notice, mention any names, <laughs> year 11, uh, one of my classes in particular were terrible at doing work. And it came to the end of the week, I was almost ready to go back to school, and some of them hadn't submitted any work at all, despite being present at school. I sent them many firm reminder emails, hoping I wouldn't have to punish them when I returned. And like this, Paul is giving these people a final chance to repent before facing serious discipline from him in person. Well, Paul shows steadfast love to the Corinthians. He's a model of what Christian ministry and leadership looks like, but he's not afraid to offend them, to tell them off. In fact, this is another way that he can strengthen them and build them up. One way that God works in the lives of Christians is through godly discipline and rebuke. Now, I love getting encouragement, but do you know what actually sticks with me more? It's when I've had to be rebuked by those in leadership. It wasn't, it wasn't pleasant at the time. It upset me. But it really helped me to actually change and repent. Friends, when you are rebuked, how do you react? It's all too easy to make excuses or to be self-righteous or to criticise the person who's rebuking us. But being rebuked by a Christian minister or leader is one way that God grows us. Do you see rebuke as an opportunity to grow in your faith? Well, we see Paul's straight talking again in verse 5 when he seems to talk more broadly to the Corinthian church. Have a look with me on verses 5 and 6. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? And I trust that you will discover that you have not failed the test. The false teachers have caused a lot of confusion, and so Paul challenges the Corinthians to test themselves, examine themselves, and see if they are truly in the faith. Again, Paul here is motivated by that desire to strengthen them. Paul wants to push the Corinthians to one of two options. First, to be certain and assured that they truly are saved. Or second, to realize that they haven't actually yet become a Christian. You see, if the Corinthians test themselves and find they are indeed in the faith, living with Jesus as their Lord, repenting of their sin to him, that's great. What an assurance. But some of the Corinthians may have actually had to realize that they weren't yet in the faith. Their persistent, unrepentant sin might mean they haven't actually accepted Christ yet and aren't Christians. If this is the case, Paul wants them to realize this and then repent and turn to Christ. I had a friend at uni who was like this second category. He thought he was a Christian, but it was so clear just from his social media that he was still living a life of sin. Eventually, he came to this realization that he wasn't actually a Christian and he hadn't repented or put his trust in Jesus. And praise God, realizing this actually led to him becoming a Christian. Well, the reason uh, Paul gives the Corinthians this challenge is again for their benefit, to build them up, to give assurance to those who truly are Christians, and to prompt those who are not to make that change and to trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Paul is tough on the Corinthian church. 
He's a straight talker. He rebukes them and disciplines them when he needs to. And this is all for the purpose of building them up. The fifth aspect of Paul's ministry to the Corinthians I want us to see this morning is supplication, uh, the S word for prayer. Read with me from verses 7 through to verse 9. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is that you may be fully restored. So Paul tells the Corinthians here that he's praying for them. He prays that they won't do anything wrong, but they'll do what is right. In short, he prays that they will not sin. Paul also prays in verse 9 that they'll be restored in right relationship with Christ. A key mark of Paul's ministry is his dependence on God in prayer. And here in this passage, we actually see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility working together. On the one hand, the Corinthians need to act. They need to change. And Paul tells them to do this. And at the same time, Paul here acknowledges that it's God who does that work. That's why he prays for God to help them do what is right and to be restored. We see this again in the final few verses of the passage. In verses 11 and 12, Paul urges the Corinthians to strive for full restoration, encourage one another to be of one mind and to live in peace. And then in verse 14, he says these famous words that you may have heard at a Sunday church service before. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He's praying in that verse that God, sorry, that Christ will work in the Corinthians by his grace. He's praying that God's love will be with the Corinthians and work with them and change them. And he's praying for God the Holy Spirit to restore their relationship with God and their relationships with each other. As we say these verses, we're praying that the triune God will be with us and work within us and change us. So even as Paul tells the Corinthians in this passage to do things, to repent, to rejoice, to encourage one another and to test themselves, he at the same time prays that God will help them to do these things. This is why prayer is such an important part of Christian ministry. Because God is in control. Christian ministry must be grounded in prayer. Now, we're not actually told how the Corinthians reacted to this letter. We don't actually know how Paul's visit went. But as interested as we might be in that, we need to focus not so much on how the Corinthians reacted, but on how we should react. What are the implications of Paul's words for us here today? Well, I think the implications can be seen for both God's people in general and for Christian leaders in particular. Firstly, for God's people. We need to examine ourselves to test if we are in the faith. From this passage, we can see that what characterizes people of faith is this. They repent of their sin. It's a big deal when people who call themselves Christians are not repenting. Have you repented of your sin? Even though 2 Corinthians was written almost 2,000 years ago, I think our sins today are often very similar to the Corinthians. Which of these are you most prone to? Impurity, sexual sin, 
jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance. Are there any of those sins that you need to repent of? Friends, test yourselves. Repent of your sin and know that we have the assurance from the scriptures that Jesus forgives those who repent and cleanses them from all unrighteousness. Also, as God's people, how do we react when a minister or a growth group leader or mentor rebukes us? If you're anything like me, you can be all too quick to justify yourself or to make excuses or discount it. But as Paul's showing us here, Discipline from a Christian leader is one way that God actually builds us up. We need to listen when we're rebuked, repent of our sin, and know that this is part of God's plan to strengthen us. Secondly, some implications for Christian leaders. Paul is writing here in this unique situation. He has the authority of an apostle. That's a select group that doesn't continue any longer. Our ministers, our bishops, or even our archbishops do not have the same authority that Paul has as he wrote this letter. But even though our situation isn't identical, I think this passage has a lot to show us as Christian leaders. If you're a minister, a chaplain, a growth group leader, a youth leader, a kids' church teacher, a lay preacher or service leader, a music team leader, a mentor or a parent, then this passage has a lot to tell you about how to lead and love people in your ministry. And if you aren't doing one of those roles now, but you think you may in the future, then this passage has a lot to teach you. Let's think briefly about those five features of Paul's ministry. One, sticking with people. Ministry can be really hard and really messy because ministry is about people. People who are sinful, muddled, works in progress like you and like me. But in our ministry roles, let's not be quick to give up on people. Don't just move on or check out because people are hard work. Ministry involves sticking with people. Serving. The word ministry actually just means service. It's what Christian ministry is all about. It's not about what we gain. It's about wholeheartedly giving your energy, your time, your money, and yourself to serve others. Remember that in your ministry service. And remember too the goal of ministry. It's for strengthening, for building up. I know from personal experience it's all too easy to lose sight of that motivation and to instead to want to build ourselves up. But no, ministry is about strengthening people to trust in Jesus and to stand firm in him. Well Paul's also shown us that ministry involves straight talking. I suspect this is a really tough one for many of us in the ways that we serve. It's countercultural. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. But sometimes, prayerfully and considerately, rebuking someone you lead is exactly what's needed. If someone in your growth group is living a life of unrepentant sin, be clear with them. They need to repent. If someone that you lead in ministry is hurting a brother or sister, rebuke them. Friends, it can be really hard to do. But assuming we're doing it right, with the right motive, it's a way that God actually uses us to strengthen our brothers and sisters in the faith. Or finally, like Paul, as Christian leaders, we need to be praying for the people we lead. I feel like I'm speaking to myself here too. I definitely could be more prayerful in praying for the people that I lead. 
Are you praying for the people in your kids' church class that they will know and love Jesus? Are you praying for the person you mentor, for your youth group, for your ministry team member, for your growth group, for your own children? In Christian ministry, we rightly serve, we teach, lead, and correct people. But at the same time, it's God who does the work. He's the one who changes hearts. He's the one who helps people to repent and to say no to sin. And so we need to be praying for the people that we serve. While Christian leaders or future Christian leaders persevere with the people you minister to, serve them so that they're strengthened in the faith. Rebuke and discipline them when you need to and pray for them, remembering that God is in control and he is the one who changes hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how you speak to us. Father, help us to be people who repent of our sins. Father, help us to turn to you, say no to sin, and repent of our sin to you. Father, when we're rebuked, help us to see that as an opportunity to be strengthened in the faith. And Father, as Christian leaders, help us to persevere with people. Help us to serve them so that they're strengthened in the faith. Help us to rebuke them when we need to. And Father, help us to be people of prayer, remembering that you're in control and you are the one who changes people's hearts. Amen.